SequelCast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. When three men take off in a rocket and only one comes back, in our reckoning, that leaves minus two. Only God knows where and how far that rocket traveled. I'm I'm quite amused. I was looking on Twitter. I used to have the Twitter account that was just sequel cast, but now it's taken over by another movie podcast that's about sequels. Because um, because there's a few of them. There's one of England. There's one of Canada, and, and uh, which I'm not surprised at. Um, it's a obvious concept. And let's go. Okay. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2 and Friends. This is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. We are starting a new series uh, with uh, a series of, of British films. This is Alex Pick. It uh, has a name that's very mispronounced, so I will attempt it. But characters in the film are from, you know, American, Irish, uh, British, uh, all, all these things, right, and have different accents, so they pronounce it differently in the film as well. I will call it the... Quatermassic experiment, is that right? Bam, nailed it. Um, so I'm I'm Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. And Alex. Thrasher, that's the exact same line I was going to say, so I'm just going to do a bad Brian Don Levy impression. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the trees whispering. It's I think they may be part of the Quatermass experiment. That's the worst David Lynch impression ever. I'm just going <laughs> to stop it. No, oh, you can't have my newspaper. <laughs> I called Val Guest and I said I'm a big fan of his Quatermass pictures. I love there's the thing, I think it was either this year or last year where it was about the Cannes Film Festival. All of a sudden these rumors spread everywhere that David Lynch was going to premiere a brand new film at the that nobody knew anything about at the Cannes Film Festival, which sounds like something he would do. Oh, totally. And he had to debunk those rumors. But I've heard he's been trying to do TV shows with Netflix. I've heard he has other stuff coming. He's been taking a long, long, long time between projects, which, um, I mean, he can be retired if he wants to, really, if, if uh, he was good with his money and he didn't want to work or whatever. So I don't know. But I hope we get more from David Lynch because I oh, like yeah. him a lot. I never thought Twin Peaks, The Return, would happen, and it did. And I as didn't much think it was going to be good, and it was fucking great. It was it was really good, and especially that what was it episode eight was that the black and white one? Yeah, it was like a God silent light. film with the, oh God of light, so good. Maybe we can get a revival of On the Air, his situation comedy. <laughs> Maybe I kind of hope he uh, Lynch would do the um, is it the spit bubble or he had some script he was all set to do with Martin Short, and then the the money got pulled at the last second because Martin Short keeps complaining about it on talk shows because he he bought the house with the advance he saw he was going to get for starring in this David Lynch movie. And then it ended up not happening. So he had to oh. scramble oh. And, and stuff like that happens quite, quite a lot. Um, yeah. unfortunately, but all right. Yeah. The, the, the Quatermass experiment, um, Alex, what drew you to this? Cause this one's sort of interesting. It's, you know, it's films, it's miniseries. It's, 
Yeah, it's a little. It even it's a feels little like it could have been a stage play or something. Yeah. Yeah. So what? The um, interesting thing I was once upon a time I was a part of a small theater company and um, I uh, became friends with the, one of the leader lead cast members, this uh, gentleman. And um, we 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 got talking about movies, and he was like, you know, I like like B movies, grade Z movies, like Ed Wood, yada yada yada, all this crazy shit. I'm like, oh cool, yeah, me too. And he said, you know, how about Hammer? Have you ever heard of Hammer? And I'm like, no. So he brought this book in. It was this great book of like Hammer movie posters and stuff like that. And I just see this big spread for uh, Quatermass in the Pit, the technically the third film in the series, which we'll get to, and just that name, Quatermass, like just just jumped out to me as I got sounds so cool, evocative and weird. What the hell is it? No, it don't tell me. I just want to find out for myself. And then, um, I, I went on to see uh creator mass in the pit and I was just knocked the fuck out by it. And then learning, it's like you backdate it. It's like when you listen to Led Zeppelin and then you realize that like you have the Yardbirds and you have Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and like, you know, it's like backdating your favorite thing ever. So when you backdate creator mass, you get the, three four main films and you get each film has its own fucking you know bbc serial behind it and this just kind of led to my lifelong um love affair with with all things relating to hammer cinema it really is a genre um unto itself and um curse of frankenstein might have been their big for their big like gothic horror um you know international success but Quatermass experiment is really the movie that put them in the main stage of, of international cinema. Yeah, this this is our first Hammer film, and I have wanted us to cover a Hammer series for a long time, so this is a, a very big thrill for me. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but this is our first black and white film, isn't it? Um, Since I've been on board, I think. Since Alex has been on board, certainly, I need to look through the archive. You know, I was um, had, had some you... time in my hands recently so I, I was putting some old archive episodes up we have a 130 out of the original 225 uh sequel cast episodes that's not counting some of the specials and, and things but i'll have to this very well could be the first black and white one certainly we've talked about films with black and white sequences and this uh is is likely the oldest film we've done for a while that was the infamous two jakes which is both one of our worst and best episodes yes that is that is legendary sequel cast lore right there uh you can find that at sequelcast2.com along with all our other episodes but yeah the so the the, the quatermass experiment the u.s title is the creeping unknown which i, I think in in some ways is a is a better title it sounds very hp lovecraft well it i is. think i think it is a better and more evocative title, but keep keeping in mind in Britain, Quatermass was a brand. Right. That's exactly. And that's exactly uh, why they changed it because there was abs- literally no recognition of the Quatermass name in the States. Um, and also the importation of uh, importing um, Brian Don Levy was solely done in order to get in good with the um, American AIP uh, distributors um, and the funny thing was that Nigel, everyone thinks that Don Levy just kind of killed it. Um, but Nigel Neal, the creator of Quatermass, hates him, hates the Brian Don Levy movies with um, uh. with, with much rigor. Well, he definitely plays Professor Bernard Quatermass as like a boorish American, but it, but the character's still supposed to be British. I think they even left in some references into the script to him being like a Londoner. <laughs> Yeah, which is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> kind of anachronistic, which I love. We're going to send up that rocket. 
<laughs> I, I do like in the original title, it, it's experiment with an X. It makes me think of the, the later Roger Corman film, like uh, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Oh, yeah, um, and that's uh, not a coincidence. Sure, and as you mentioned with AIP, I mean, they, they had a lot of exchange of, of movies with England and, and, and vice versa, because, of course, in England, they speak English like the United States, but the, a lot of the, the slang is quite different you know the actors are not always as recognizable and i'm convinced it's almost a, a genetic thing or something but it seems like british actors can always uh to me can mostly act circles around american actors even if all the character is doing is sipping on a glass of wine or maybe raising an eyebrow oh like yeah there, there's and... something about the, the the intensity the the presence that um and I was talking to someone on Twitter about this, about the actor John Reese davies Like, even if he's in the shittiest computer game, like, he, he plays it like it's kinglier every time. Every well, goddamn think, time. I think it's kind of a, a difference in philosophy, and it comes down, like, to two things. Uh, one, British actors aren't afraid to just treat it like a job. You're hired to act, so you're just sure, going to act, sure. and the quality of the production doesn't matter. But two, I think I think in America, there's a big emphasis on, well, you're a good actor if you can act naturally. Whereas in Britain, it's like, well, you're a good actor if you can act in an actorly fashion. And so we tend to get more actorly performances, which is great on stage. Sometimes it hits well on film, sometimes it doesn't, but I still I still like it regardless. Well, I think that's good also, for villains. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, I think that's also a good segue just for a hammer in general, because what they take here is that they take potentially sensational material, but they play it serious. They play it straight. And the, the, the omission of E in experiment is intentional to emphasize the film's X rating. How this got an X rating it, compared to today's fare is, is un, think, unimaginable. But it's it's funny though, because like even even in something like this, um, Richard Wordsworth, you know, uh, Shakespeare and Company classically trained the, uh, actor. I don't think he has a single line of dialogue in the entire film, and he is so goddamn good. He is terrific in this film. Um, it's a and it's the same thing across the board with Hammer. Whether it's the the editing, the directing, the writing, it's all done with this like refined mastery. Um, and it's it's they kind of lean opposite from American drive-in sci-fi fare at the time. Instead of trying to play to kids or play to drive-ins, they play to the most like mature, highest common denominator. You know. And you know, and in later films, they would unabashedly spin some sex and violence on the movies. Oh uh, yeah, yes. And uh, I think what's—I mean, looking at this at the time, you you see with the 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 story and the the ship comes back and and what the person looks like and uh, how how he keeps mutating as the film goes on. I mean, that must have been pretty shocking to see on the screen at the time, uh, probably on like a Cronenbergian level or something. Well, they they were some of the body horror. Like there's not too many special effects in this film, but what special effects they that the film has are amazing. You know, first you've got the you've got the the makeup work on Richard Wadsworth as he's continuing to be more like radiation scarred and mutaty and 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 stretched out. Uh, you've got like the weird like alien tissue sample that crawls around the lab, which is it's one of those things, and maybe it's the black and white that does this. But it's one of those special effects where I look at it and think, how the hell did they do that in the 1950s? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, they, and they did it with no money. 
Yeah, and then you have the big blob at the end, which is just a composite shot, but it's such a smooth, well-done composite shot that it really makes your brain have to think about, like, well, what what am I looking at? And it's just so disturbing seeing that wet, creeping flesh and the scaffolding above the church. It's It, it really doesn't, like... That's what that in my head. That's what a Shawgoth from the Cthulhu Mythos looks yes. like. Like this perfectly captured what I have been imagining in my head for years. Oh, and what's brilliant too is that that's um that's Les Bowie and uh, the visual effects guy. And uh, not only was he a great visual effects artist, um, he was a fantastic matte painter. If you ever get a sense of like wonder and atmosphere in any of these Dracula films, it's because of Les Bowie's. Uh, you know, either forced perspective or um, terrific map paintings. And he worked on a bajillions of different other of other movies. If you looked up his jacket, you'd probably be like, oh, he did that. Yeah, um, I believe some of the cathedral shots are, are map paintings in, in this film. Yep. And the uh, do you know what the monster is at the end? It's it's uh, it's tripe. I was trying to figure that yep. out. That makes so much sense. Yeah, it's a All piece of tripe. texture yep. on tripe and the the. The sliminess, the goopiness, that it's quite clever. Yeah. It's good. In stuff. the end, the monster was Scrapple. <laughs> it was haggish. Um <laughs> Well that's and the other thing too is that they, they play this so dead nuts serious and it works so well and I think it, it kind of calcifies the film in a in a tiny way. It's very much of its time. But they, you know, they literally shot it on newsreel stock film. I mean, it's very grainy black and white. Um, it has a wonderful texture because of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the other thing, too, is that we're post-war, Cold War. And the the post-war climate in, in Britain and England was so different from ours because if they got hit with nuclear fallout, you're an island and you're kind of, you know, SOL. Um, and this well, is beyond- reflected... Beyond that, though, it was a grim time because keep in mind that that World War II rationing continued in Britain for almost a decade after the war. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, and, you know, so we're we're kind of straddling two horrible things, the, the post-war and, and the, the Cold War. And, uh, you know, this is what le- practically less than a decade from, you know, when bombs were being dropped and all this good, all this crazy shit. And so the the idea of a you know something crashing to earth in a you know a, it's uh, it recalls like you know classic kind of um, gothic literature as well as modern science fiction you know you kind of have the fa- the the found text with the, the like the super eight film that they find in the spaceship and then you kind of have the like body snatcher type uh, story or as John Carpenter calls it the fungus among us um, <laughs> subgenre which I love. So you have these kind of two two schools of science fiction, gothic horror, and they blend perfectly. Find inflation the old-fashioned way by spending less money. Check out the Hyperx store at Amazon.com to find great Prime Day deals on July 12th and 13th. Stock up on new gaming gears so you'll be equipped for the new launches and content drops. Mark your calendars and set your alarms. Deals like this won't stick around long. That's That's really cool. I mean, yeah, you... And just the black and white photography in this, it, it makes everything look so crisp and, and the blacks are so black. It makes you think anything could be coming out of the shadows. I loved a shot early on in the film where you, you don't quite know much what's going on, but you uh, you see kind of this um, city street and like a, 
an ambulance goes by, a military truck goes by, and it's just the camera pans over and then pans back. Oh, there's another big uh, emergency vehicle, pans over, pans back. Yep. So you, you get this this building of of suspense, real just, just straight up visual storytelling, like, oh, there's an emergency, all these emergency things are going to it. We don't really know what it is. And then even when you see the, um, the, the crashed uh, uh, spaceship with the one survivor on, on it, like... It does look damaged. Doesn't look like mutated. It it, it is a gradual, as the uh, title for this in the U.S. was. It is a creeping fear. It is yeah. a thing. It, it's not like it, it's uh, a boogity boogity monster immediately out of the gate. It's not alien immediately out of. Well, neither is alien. But you know, it's not the, the green man shooting people with a gun or something. Like there's so you, you could have taken this premise and had something very rote. Instead, oh, okay. it kind of makes the most of its, which clearly a limited budget. Well, the this is a this is a a movie that takes its time. At times, it doesn't just take its time; it is slow. But I really appreciate that it gives it gives the horror time to breathe. And it and, and I've I've talked about this before that I I do have an unironic love for slow, talky science fiction, and this is a very good example of that. Like the characters are not afraid to verbalize their their sort of philosophy on science and what's going on, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, it makes it feel like, like you're reading an older book. Exactly. And it's funny, too, because like you said, slow burning, super talky, old school sci-fi. But it doesn't seem nonsensical like the like the way a lot of films from this period are. It's, it's not like, oh, he's got a case of the space madness, you see, in the booby-doop, in the boopy-doop. You know, what the dialogue plays fairly convincingly. I mean, there's a little bit of jargon and, and odd terminology chucked around. But for the most part, it feels pretty convincing. Well, yeah, it, everything everything feels plausible. And the whole while, you see poor, poor Richard uh, Wordsworth as as Victor Caroon, and he's just sitting there in this chair, and he just like his face is just like tattooed with these unspoken horrors. You know, you know, there's some, this dude is is either harboring some dark shit or is becoming some dark shit. So should we, should we, uh, oh, and actually, as long as we're talking about, like, the characters describing their moral philosophy, some, something that, that hit me watching this, uh, that isn't really a factor uh, in the other Quatermass movies, uh, is that in this movie, for all intents and purposes, Quatermass is the antagonist. He, oh yeah, he's a big old bastard. Yep. Oh yeah, he he's a scientist who's so because because this is the this is the thing about like science and the space program and things you know like expanding our sphere of knowledge is very important and is on the whole a very good thing and expanding our 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 sort of our reach into the stars that's that's an important and on the whole very good thing but his the way he pursues science is completely divorced from humanity like he truly this this version of bernard quatermass clearly does not care how many people have to die uh, and be crushed under the engine of progress. Oh, At yeah. no point does he seem to give a damn about the safety of the people he's sending up into space. Because, like, you know, the first mission, you know, the unexpected's certainly going to happen. And you got to expect the unexpected. And right. he certainly didn't know this was going to happen. But now that he knows this is a possibility, he doesn't change a goddamn thing nope. to make the process safer. Like, the last shot is just him sending up another rocket, probably oh, yeah. full of three more some bitches who are going to get mutated by space yep. radiation. 
it's you know this is the guy who, uh, that like while he's putting on his tie is saying to himself i am going to change the world and i don't give a shit how many people die in the process like <laughs> bing bang boom we are gonna you know freaking call terraform mars saturn whatever um yeah and people are gonna die and that's just tough shit <laughs> he just does not care And you know what? And it works better because the original um, BBC serial, the Quater Mass Experiment, spelled with an E, um, the original Quater Mass is very effect, very um, existential character. You know, this is a guy who, who looks longingly out of windows a lot. You're very um, much British intellectual. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And oh my goodness, good golly, Ms. Molly, Brian Donlevy is not that. He is. He's the guy, he's the first one on the scene, he's the fastest talker, he doesn't give a shit, yes means yes, no means no, go fuck yourself means go fuck yourself. He's uh, <laughs> he's not looking at windows and pondering the, you know, the notion of uh, our, our being, you know. He's there to get a job done, damn it. It's it's worth noting, too, the, the director here, Val Guest, I mean, what a career. He did, you know, a lot of things for not just uh, Hammer, but perhaps, you know, some of the, the better known films he, he did are uh, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Oh, is a yeah. real classic, uh, happens to be from Hammer. But he was also one of nearly half a dozen directors that did the infamous 1967 Casino Royale, which no, is everyone, a, a comedy film, sort that. of. <laughs> yes. Uh, with With David Niven and Peter Sellers and others, and we it should do both. some James Bond on the show sometime. I mean, we've been doing this show for uh, almost 15 years, Thrasher. And, oh, yeah. and and with you, Alex, we've been doing it for how long now? Maybe three or four? Three? Yeah. Three? Like three? Let's say three. Yeah. And it's been, and it's been uh, great, but that we haven't really touched James Bond or the Marvel or DC comic stuff that much, <laughs> except for the 90s material, is um, both neat and baffling at the same well, time considering well, how much that, that is let's let's put that on the table yeah. and try to figure sure. out how to do that without self-destructing <laughs> yeah I, exactly. I think we would just do it like in maybe four or three movie chunks and and figure out some some logical uh sean connery part one or, or right yeah or, or something but but for for our audience you need to see the original Casino Royale, because it is both an adaptation of James Bond, but also a satire of James Bond. And who's in it? Well, anyone who's ever worked in film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so when it came out around the time of the, as the um, second or third James Bond film, and yeah, it was it was a hit. Yeah. yeah, it was a hit, uh, despite it, um, you know, the budget uh, inflating and the cast kind of rotating in and out for uh, the, the infamous Creative Differences uh, cover story. Um, in addition, I mean, this it technically was not the first Christina Royale. There was a TV movie in the States done for uh, uh, one of the networks, and they changed the name of James Bond to Jimmy Bond. They made him American. <laughs> yeah, as, CIA as the, agent. CIA agent, yeah. And uh, as the chief, who do they have? But the great Herbert Lom. Oh, brilliant. From From M., no, Peter Lorre, shit. That's what I meant. But yeah, Peter Lorre is, is, is Le Chief. Where in uh, the Casino Royale film, Le Chief is played by Orson Welles, and he happens to do magic tricks just because Orson oh, Welles loves magic tricks. Yeah, he just that. does Orson Welles' shtick in addition to playing this character. <laughs> ah, the French. Okay, so 
back to the crater yeah. mask. Val Guest, though, he... A lot of directors associated with Hammer, the biggest one is obviously Terrence Fisher. Um, we'll get to him someday, I hope. Great director. But Val Guest is the kind of one of the more... Impo- he's also equally important in the Hammer canon because he was kind of there for all of it. He directed uh, Hell is a City, which is one of their uh, noirs. He did their war pictures, The Camp on Blood Island and Yesterday's Enemy. Um, a really great... Yesterday's Enemy sounds like the name of a Star Trek episode. It really does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another great kind of uh, play it for real horror film, The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas with a young Peter Cushing. And then all the way up until when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. Um, so you kind of ran the gamut for Hammer and did a lot of cool shit, um, kind of from all angles of it, from the early noir to the later dinosaur pictures. And is a very capable director. He, he did one in the, even kept directing each other, early 80s. I mean, that's a real... Uh, that's really something about um, some of these older film directors, but especially some of the British directors. I'm, I'm uh, thinking specifically of, oh, the the one who did like Death Wish 2 through 4 and some of the later Planet of the Apes sequels. Where they're, they're super old, but they're still directing and making, you know, extraordinary, not just competent, but like very good films. And uh, uh, Val, um, was it Val Lewis, Newton, uh, Val Guest, excuse me, I, I got that right, Ron and Two Counts. <laughs> did a film in 82 called The Boys in Blue, which is a police academy, which is a loose remake of a 1939 film with one of the more British titles I've ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> any guesses as to what it is? I, I have no idea. Thrasher, I you s- can guess something. I assume it's about, like, the Bobbies or something. Ask a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just that, it's just, like, the most... It's bland but funny at the same time. There's something like a, a, a literalism on... Uh, some of these titles and well, it, sound, uh, oh, it, it sounds like, very British. Oh, it yes. does. It does. Like, you know, like pardon me, postman. That would be like another title. <laughs> yes. Or the, a 1951 comedy. Um, the same director did Mr. Drake's duck. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, uh, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, quite mass experiment. It, I do wonder if, if when people saw this, if they had to be like escorted out of the theater, or maybe with the American marketing, if they ever. This sounds like something they would try and do, where almost like a uh, a thing where you must sign a life insurance policy before watching the yeah. movie or, or do some kind <laughs> of. Uh... You know, they probably could have gotten away with that, but I think that would have kind of um, violated their their playing it so maturely. Is that they could have had a William Castle esque gimmick? You know, uh, you might be scared to death. But I I just don't think that was their bag. It was um, it's an interesting way to lean because you've got, again, atomic age, uh, you know, science fiction. But they yeah, they play it for they play it for real. And I think it's one of the things that works very much in the film's favor and um, would kind of also define the uh, subsequent Quatermass film. So should we actually describe what the what the plot of this is? I guess, right? Twenty five minutes in, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's really it's really straightforward. As it begins, a rocket crashes in a farm outside of uh, outside of like in in like the British countryside, and the rocket's too hot for emergency workers to come in. It turns out it's a Quatermass rocket. Quatermass comes up. Um, finally, they're they're able to get in because Quatermass knows how to reduce its temperature. And they get out, uh, again, risking the lives of the rescue crew. But the rocket had three three men in it, 
but o- there's only one man in the rocket when that they pull out and like there's no sign of what happened to the other men and so there's sort of two threads going on there's this one man the you know uh, uh Victor Caroon played by uh, Richard Wordsworth there's his degeneration in the hospital as he like continues to mutate and elongate and is just in constant pain and his temperature never feels right and things like that. Uh, but then the other thing is Quatermass and his team of scientists trying to figure out, well, where are the other two passengers? And there's an amazing scene. It's, it's one of those scenes where there's like, it's for me, this was the most frightening scene in the movie uh, and nothing particularly scary happens, but they find there's there's a they had camera a camera on the rocket that would film they would they would turn on and film when things like if like during certain situations so they could have have a record on them and they just watched this soundless grainy black and white film of these three astronauts going about their lives. But and just the fact that it's soundless creates so much tension. And then about halfway through, something is clearly causing them to panic. Something is causing the rocket to like wobble in its orbit. So they're all moving around. And then this like weird misty shimmer passes over like over everything. And then suddenly it's just one person in the rocket lying in bed. And, and, and mm-hmm. it's disturbing in its way. It's such a great scene. And again, like you said, it's silent. It's creepy. It's the creeping unknown. Um, and it works so well because it also it's 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 uncanny because it's that eight millimeter speed. You, It's not a, it, like when you watch those old um, eight super eight film reels, they move at that kind of jerky, slower pace. And you're like, is that the gravity? Is that the spaceship? Like, no, it's just uh, that's just the effect. It's creepy and it works quite well. And again, it's that it's that classic, you know, found text thing that you get in like, you know, a great in a great like Anne Radcliffe novel or something like that. It's um, I love it. It's so classic, classic horror. Yeah. I, oh, gosh. I, I like I would I would love to see like a period found footage movie where it is people going through those kinds of reels and piecing yeah. together some weird disaster. But anyway, um, uh, Victor Caroon, his his wife desperately wants to see him and 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 she's fed up with Quatermass. So she sneaks Victor out of the hospital and it's actually, uh, you know, pretty clever the way it's, the way it's done, like arranging things so that like a service entrance is unlocked and she goes in disguised as a, as a nurse. And it's really, it's, it's cool. So anyway, uh, Victor gets out, but Victor continues to mutate uh, and starts killing uh, people and zoo animals. And there's like a disturbing, there's a disturbing scene where like he encounters like a child playing near an embankment and you're worried. It's like, it's like Frankenstein and the girl by the river all exactly. over again. Yep. Um, you know, you're, you're worried for the, for the kid's life and the houseboat and everything. And, and finally, Quatermass and his team figure out what happens because like a tissue sample they took from Victor, like comes to life and starts crawling over the lab is that what they determine is that that weird shimmering light was some sort of extraterrestrial entity that passed through the ship and it merged all three people together. So Victor Karoom is all three astronauts, but fused into one unstable body that is assimilating the cells of the creatures that he kills. And that's sort of fueling his his mutation and that as he mutates, he will eventually turn into something that could reproduce and could sort of consume the world with his spores. Uh, and they don't figure that out until too late. 
and that eventually builds to the climax where Victor Karoom, now a giant blob, um, has like is like clinging to the ceiling of a cathedral, and they discover that like enough electricity will shut the cells down and kill it. And this is, and I did some research on this because this is based on the Quatermass series mini series that ran on British television. And the writer of the series and the creator of Nigel Quatermass, or, or uh, Bernard Quatermass, Nigel Neal, he hated science fiction that just ended with a big moment of violence. He hated <laughs> he hated a monster dying in a fire or an explosion. So in the original miniseries, Bernard Quatermass does give does reaches out to what's left of the humanity, the three astronauts in the blob monster. And basically convinces it to take its own life uh, to protect the uh, to voluntarily end its own and uh, end its own existence to protect all the people it still cares about on Earth, and it's this kind of very melancholy, you know, kind kind of ending where the creature accepts its mortality and whatnot. But in this movie, Quatermass gives the same speech. But it's just a distraction so that they can hook two electrical <laughs> cables to it and electrocute the monster to death in a big explosion. <laughs> yeah, he was. There's a lot of things that he did not like, and um, not only was it, it it wasn't just Brian Don Levy. He was not a big fan of the finale or or the yeah the dispatching of the creature. Um, again, though, the original Nigel Neal's uh, BBC series they're pretty good. If uh, well, you have a chance to watch them, I recommend they're on uh, YouTube. Oh, certainly. And and the ending of this. And I, and I will say this, as, as much as it's not the sort of more melancholy, intellectually stimulating ending that was originally intended, it is it is at least dramatically satisfying. And the fact that, that Bernard, the only time Bernard Quatermass appeals to someone's humanity, it's a lie. Uh, yeah. Just to distract <laughs> the monster, reinforcing what an unrepentant asshole he is. Because what happens yeah. afterwards, you know, he walks out of the church, I'm going to send up another rocket. And then that's right. the last thing we see is an, him is another rocket carrying another three people to their doom. And it's well, another... the tip... Oh, sorry. Go, you... Go ahead. Oh, the and then this is a early case. This really like, kind of cemented the um, hammer pacing. You get a slow first act ramp it up by the third act and then it's just go 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 and shh, abrupt ending and it's it, it works perfectly here i think and you see him storming off he's literally gonna go home drop plans for another another ship yeah i love i love that get you out fast ending i think that's yep. great oh big time and it's really I mean, yeah uh, hammer was big on that and it, it it's effective mainly because you're like what party is like, wait this is the ending but then also makes you think about like well what's going to happen next what why did they what was he really trying to do with the th the thing that happened at the end and, and that uh Quatermass is is such an asshole um, it, it reminds me very much of how peter cushing uh, is dr frankenstein in those oh, films time. is treated because um even though he'll frequently disguise himself under different names or move to a different city or, or whatever it is depending on the film like he just wants to get his damn experiments done and damn everyone else Oh, big time! It's a it's a definitely a lead up to Hammer's Frankenstein, and the Quatermass films are interesting because you can see the like the shared DNA with other sci-fi properties, but it nothing feels derivative because you kind of can't derive this. Um, 
And it's also it also feels like a warm up to something like uh, you know like the X Files. You have a, a, a paranormal uh, science fiction alien related specialist, you know, coming to to fix a problem basically. Um, and it it definitely reminds me a little bit too that this had to inspire Chris Carter with the X Files. Yeah, I mean, I, I never would have made that leap from Frankenstein to to the X Files, but I mean, I think you're. I think that's a good thing to, to way to think about it. Also, certainly that the Quatermass experiment probably influenced things like, uh, oh, I can't. What's the name? The the show that the big show that inspired the X Files with the guy that was the dad in Gremlins. Oh, oh, the uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. The Kolchak, yeah. the Night Stalker. I think you, you have kind of these the science fiction, creature feature, horror kind of crossover elements, but then you have a big focus on science and as to why this happens. And it's not just, oh, there's something scary in the woods, let's shoot it. There's some thought, there's some story, there's some themes behind it, some, you know, usual, some kind of a social commentary there's, going there's on. There's something to be explored or discovered. Yes, it uh, really sticks to the ribs. Any um, last thoughts on Quatermass experiment? Oh, geez. Just that I'm, I am looking forward to the rest of this series. <laughs> the um, I could go on. I mean, I just did an independent study on Hammer this semester for school. Um, I could go on about this for at great lengths. Um, but the Cliff's Notes version. Um, yeah, this is the big one. This is the one that um, really got um, Hammer going. Um, you know, they weren't a new company at this point. Um, they had been producing films since the 30s. But um, they really didn't find their voice, I think, until um, they adapted Nigel Neal's um, Quatermass creation. Um, and another interesting thing, this is a, a lot of hammer you know st crew stuff um it's all it's all family atmosphere and this is a uh, james bernard's first uh score and it's not only is it a fucking it's a great score but it's also um kind of predates psycho and it's all string arrangement oh you know what you need to do uh you need to play the the, the three note semitone that is woven throughout the entire yes, score you sure. need to, you need to splice that into the podcast here do you love Japan and video games? Well, so do we. We're Kinsey and Mark from Kyoto Indie Dev's Chuhai Labs. Join us twice monthly for games, silly Japan news, and all-around nonsense. We stink at making commercials. <laughs> we f***ing got this one, bro. Be sure to stop by the Chuhai Labs Discord to chat about our games or ask us questions. Chuhai Labs and the Nasty Labs Podcast. We're legally the best. Hi, it's me, Jeremy Parrish, co-host of the Retronauts Podcast, the only video game history podcast that's been around so long, it's also a part of video game history. Every week, one of the motley rabble who hosts this show leads a deep dive into the past, whether it's to break down a classic franchise, learn more about a timeless game from its creator, or just wallow in nostalgia. Relive history with Retronauts, here on the HyperX Podcast Network.
I'm Colette. And I'm Matt. It's time to talk about the most important topic facing humanity. Video games. Oh, okay, video games. (laughs) Every week on Colette and Matt have entered the chat. We have in-depth conversations about the games we're currently playing. We also talk to people who make video games as well as YouTubers, writers, and podcasters that you already know and love. We also talk about what you're playing when you join our community. Subscribe to Colette and Matt have entered the chat wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Yeah. Um, and also what he would do is that he would make uh, he would follow the syllables of the film's title and base the score around that. So it's Queen um, And the same thing with Dracula, Dracula. Um, mm. And you, you can trace it through all James Bernard's Hammer scores. It's it's really uh, it's a fun game of connect the dots. The way, the way you mentioned the three-note thing reminds me a bit of what uh, John Williams did in the late 70s with the uh, the titular theme to uh, the Superman, the motion picture. There it's, da-da-da, Superman. Yes. Look up on the sky, Superman. <laughs> and the connection, and, and less yeah. Bowie worked on Superman. Oh, there you go. Of course, yeah, that was uh, filmed in England. So. Um, yeah, and I got to say, like, like w- watching this... I can now like acutely feel why Quatermass became a phenomenon in Britain to the point, and I'm going to save this for later, but to the point where like several like British comedians did their own parodies of Quatermass. And there's one particular one I'm going to talk about, but not until we get to the the final film because that, because it's specifically a parody of that. Nice. Cool. Great. Yeah. No, but I, I would recommend Quatermass experiment. I, I do. Uh, like what you said, Thrasher. Like, and this is true of a lot of the the, the, heart, the Hammer films and and really Stephen King novels. When I think about it, and in miniseries and things, it does have a, a slow opening, but it's to to build up the characters to kind of uh, to build up so that when the shit starts going down, you you care about the characters. You the characters have quite um, opposing personalities. There's a lot of character dynamics. It is not just a spooky, goopy alien Thrasher. I, I'm I'm going to enjoy this. I'm I'm going to give this as uh, a sequel. Yes, if you're not used to slow talky science fiction, uh, you might find yourself wanting to look at your phone during this. Don't do that. This <laughs> this movie rewards your full attention. Uh, this is this is a good movie to get immersed in. It's definite sequel. Yes, I I want to see I want to see what other havoc Quatermass is going to wreak. <laughs> And Alex. Uh, yeah, big sequel, yes. Um, this is a, a great film, of a very kind of a personal um, favorite of mine, being a big Hammer fan. Uh, the Quatermass, whole, the whole Quatermass thing from the series to the films to the later films, um, it's really cool. It's really important. I think they're great works. Um, and you can draw so much from them. And um, you can see how they have inspired and, and are, are referenced in later later works. And fun bit of trivia, if you look at the credits for um, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, it's got a screenplay credit by Bernard Quatermass. <laughs> <laughs> I love Is it. that like a, a pen name thing so it didn't have John Carpenter's name across yeah, everything? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. He would otherwise, you know, it looks like uh, something from The Simpsons, starring Troy McClure, produced by yeah. Troy McClure, catering by Troy McClure. Well, that's that's what I think the way he should do it. He sh- it should just be like everything he did by John Carpenter, and just one yeah, big exactly. thing that takes up the whole screen. 
my favorite one of those was uh, Robert Rodriguez. Um, I don't know if he still does this. It's been a while since I've seen his movies, and lately it's been a lot of uh, kid stuff or television. Um, there's nothing against it, but it's just uh, not, not my kind of thing usually. In one of them, like the credits was like shot, cut, and chopped by <laughs> Robert <laughs> Rodriguez, meaning that he uh, is the DP, edits, and um, you know directs it and writes and you know <laughs> does damn near everything. And if if anyone any listeners are looking for a good book about super super micro budget filmmaking, look up his uh, uh, memoir Rebel Without a Crew, in which Rodriguez <laughs> talks about he he um, some people will give blood you know for money to make a film. He he did a place where it, it was a one or two I think like a six week study where he had to poop in a bucket and write about his poop. For, for some uh, GI study that paid out, I don't know, like 10 grand or something. Damn. And it's it's basically, grand. right, it, it starts there and it kind of goes into the making of his first two features, uh, El Mariachi, and then uh, it, it's, it's sequel slash kind of remake Desperado. So that's, nice. that's a good book, good recommendation. All right. So let's, uh, let's move on to... What you're what you watching. I watched a film uh, with an actor that I find uh, annoying, but the, the theme of the film is, is something that I see messed up so often. I want to see, does this one screw it up? And I liked it better than some other ones. I'm talking about Free Guy, which oh. is like a, a more comedic kind of spin on, on Ready Player One or... Even the Truman Show on some level, where it's about a guy goes and realizes he's living in a simulation, in this case, a, a video game. And um, this was not a very great film. Uh, it did do quite well. It was one of the, the first uh, films with an original IP, if you want to call it that. That that did well during the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic and uh, oh don't worry in the end they bring in some some highly branded oh yes stuff. <laughs> yes <laughs> not to mention it it was completed before the pandemic and then after the pandemic you know um, it, this was a Fox film now it was owned by Disney and and they 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 have lightsabers they have all kinds of little things squeaking in there one of the Captain screenwriters the on this shield. yeah one of the screenwriters on this is Zach Penn who uh, also was a screenwriter on Ready Player One and, and uh -huh. things like the Incredible Hulk movie and, and the earlier X-Men films. He's done a lot of really interesting, uh, good work. But um, th this thing, it's... From the trailers, it's exactly what I thought it was. I think I think for me what was interesting is someone who, who's, who's worked a whopping... Uh, I mean, I, I guess I've made independent video games. I've worked in the industry longer than this, but I, I have worked for a, a bigger company in the video game industry, seeing how the office politics stuff plays out in, in this film, I'll, I'll say in free guy, uh, to my experience is much more accurate than how it was portrayed in the matrix. Uh, resurrected. The matrix resurrected. Yeah. Yeah. T Tika Watiti as the, as the like CEO of Exa the video yeah. game company, He's he really, good. he really embodies asshole tech bro in a very entertaining way. <laughs> He's very good, and yet there, there's a scene. Uh, I hate to be that guy, but that's why we have a podcast, right? <laughs> there's a scene, but at the end, he's kind of going crazy. He has an axe, and he's taking it to the server rooms to try and get rid of this um, the, this character with with all these powers that are played by Ryan Reynolds in the in the gaming world. This NPC, right? This this uh, AI, a character that kind of gains intelligence. Um, and I thought, well, 
doing an axe to the server room wouldn't do anything because you have cloud backups. B, (laughs) they don't use physical server rooms much anymore. Almost everything is in the cloud. That means there's a room somewhere. But for security purposes, you don't want it in the same place as where your employees are. You don't want it as you want it in a remote, secure location that's temperature controlled and, and all these things that where only a few people can get in there. (laughs) <laughs> the cloud. Reminded of the terrible line code of code for other person's computer. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I'm I'm uh reminded of a, a terrible scene from an otherwise very good movie we've covered on the show, Creed, where uh a Creed uh, the the titular character, not not Creed, um was it Adonis, right? Is the guy's Yeah, Adonis Creed. Don, okay. Donnie, Donnie is what they call him, right? Yeah. Where uh, Michael G. Board, B. Jordan, the main character, he, he he's taking a photo or taking notes, and uh, Rocky's like, "Hey, don't you want a notebook?" And he's like, "No, it's in the cloud." And then Rocky looks up in the sky and goes, "Cloud? <laughs> Where, where's the cloud? What's the cloud?" Yeah, it, it's it's uh, what, it's a where do I get a cloud? It's a moment both in character for Rocky and and, and just even for a, a old man joke is just. Uh, a bit forced, but we are getting a Creed three coming out. And, uh, I can't wait. And uh, Michael B. Jordan is directing it. I think it might cool. be his directorial debut. It's I'm pretty sure it's his feature directing debut. Nice. Um, and uh, Stallone isn't in it because he just said Creed two. It he had. I mean, there's problems with the making of that film with uh, a lot of his scenes with Dolph Lundgren getting cut. But also, he's like, you know, we need to hand this over to the next generation. I don't need to be Rocky for the rest of my life. Like yeah, I, uh, I, I gotta say, on Stallone's part, that's really cool. Like it's a good sport. Like that he's that he's doing that. On the other hand, a character like Rocky, I feel like that character deserves a great death scene. Um, or, or something. Stallone's like, ego is is appears to be such that I don't know if he would let that happen right like well i guess a send-off like some something to firmly mark the end of rocky's story i i don't want it to be you know in the third movie you know michael jordan's character like picks up a picture of like stallone and him together and then like sighs and puts it down then his girlfriend's like who's that and then he says oh man that was rocky i learned everything from him but he died in a grease fire you know what I mean? Like, I, I oh, don't. No, should, yeah, his restaurant exploded. The mob yeah. got their revenge. <laughs> I, I don't want his fate to be some throwaway line of fucking dialogue, basically. Well, no, like, I feel like his, 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 like, who is this? This is Rocky. This is the most important father figure in my life. You've met him a, two dozen <laughs> times. How do you not know? Well, I guess in the third movie, I, 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 I hypothesized that he got a new girlfriend. <laughs> but, oh, uh, but, um, on the yeah. subject of Free Guy, because I have seen yes. it, sure, like, sure. It, it's it's not it's far from a flawless movie. Although I got to admit, I found it very charming, and the entertaining parts were very entertaining. The, the one special thing, effects though, are very well done. Yeah, and it's also one of those things where, like, clearly the, the you know the people writing it do have real firsthand familiarity with how video games, and particularly online video games, work. Yeah. But that being said, watching this movie does make me wonder. What the hell kind of video game is this supposed to be? Because <laughs> it because it seems it seems to be like a cross between Grand Theft Auto and Fortnite, but it's an MMORPG, which sounds completely unplayable. <laughs> <laughs> and I I did like they had 
uh, stuff which actually happened in, in meetings I was in a game company and a game company I was working for where it's like, well, if the sequel is going to come out. We're going to make it so you can't take the stuff over from the first one. Oh, but they've invested all this time in the first one and you can't take your guy from game one to game two. It's like, yeah, there's I, I, I do like that. It doesn't treat gaming like a thing like, oh, we got to make sure you get the points to go to level two. You know, it's not like they're referring to something that doesn't really happen in games anymore. Right. It's. Um, hey, did you ever see this one, Alex? No, it looks interesting, and Ryan Reynolds is a lot of fun. I, I find him effortlessly charming, so I might watch it. Oh, what, are you, what have you been watching lately? Um, I rewatched a pretty formative uh, film from my past. Not past, but you know what I mean. An old movie I used to love that I, I had to check, make sure it's still good. Um, Toshiaki Toyota's Nine Souls. Have you seen this? Have you heard of this? No. no and no. It's a, uh, you know, uh, around the 2000s, from like 2000 to 2010, there was like an actual pretty good interest in like a lot of Japanese films were coming over uh, seas with like, you know, Takashi Miike uh, audition was big. A lot of the J-horror films were big. Um, so a lot of cool acts kind of got through the door and Toyota's kind of one of them. Um, he's not like a Mondo extreme guy. He's not a horror, doesn't make horror films, but um these kind of like weird, soulful, kind of like Yakuza films and um, Nine Souls. It's about nine dudes who all bust out of prison. And um, as they bust out, we kind of learn their various backstories and why they're in prison and, you know, their level of, you know, their their, mortal, their morality, man. Um, and it's really fascinating. And um, they're looking for... They're one of their cellmates because I guess when you jail in Jap- Japan, you are kind of housed with like eight, nine, ten other dudes. So one mm. of their cellmates was uh, bragging about being the counterfeit king. So they bust out basically looking for his like great hidden treasures. Um, and it's funny because in, in the trailer, it has, it shows all the guys like running away from the prison. And it has a little caption of what they're in for, but they're kind of vague. Like, you know, one of them is like Harada, uh, notorious uh, violent biker. And then there's this big dude um, named Shishido, and his caption just says, General Loose Cannon. <laughs> wow. I fucking so love a, it. Like, a real hothead of a character. Yeah, but like a total teddy bear at the same time. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a great film. It's a, like a big journey movie, fugitive film. Um, and then, you know, like a very kind of like soulful exploration of, uh, of these people's lives. And... Um, one of them, among one of them, is a guy, a kid who killed his father, and his, again, his caption is "father killer." And then there's another older dude who had killed his son, and then you know his caption is uh, "son killer." <laughs> In their stories, it's it's a really wild movie. I would encourage anyone to go check out. Um, it's a, it's a it's like if Jim Jarmusch directed a um, a Japanese prison break film, it would look something like this. So I've got I've got a challenge for you for the trailer project. It's uh take take footage of the jailbreak uh, and, and some other footage too from from Nine Souls and use that to make a music video for the Thin Lizzy song Jailbreak. <laughs> yes, challenge accepted. <laughs> Very good. And uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? 
So I, w- I went back to a film from uh, from the 90s. Uh, this, was a, this is a film that's important to me personally. Uh, but, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to say that for the most part, this movie holds up. And I think there's a lot of t- to talk about with it. And I'm shocked that we didn't get a sequel to Some Weird Resurrection. I am talking about the 1995 sci-fi film Virtuosity. Oh, yeah. With Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. And for many people, I think this was their first exposure to Russell Crowe. Oh, for us, yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Russell Crowe is quite young and skinny in this, almost to the point of being unrecognizable if you've seen what he looks like lately. And I'm not trying to slam his his looks, but just as people get older, they... Uh, it's harder to lose weight, and he tends to have been bearded in a lot of roles lately. Um, he he and aged him. in a very yeah. particular way. He's he is practically baby faced in this film. Oh yeah, he yeah is. Um, yeah. It's fucking but, weird. Movie, with the man. premise, it's a perfect pulp sci fi premise. So it's set in the near future, and Denzel Washington is a police detective or a former police detective who's in prison for murder, but to get time off his sentence, he's volunteered for this these like experiments. And the experiment is there's a scientist who's developing this immersive like Neuralink VR system to train people who have dangerous occupations. The idea being, well, we'll train them in virtual reality and they won't get hurt and they can like train to do the most dangerous stuff in the world. Um, and since he's a police detective, they're using him to help build their simulation for police work. But but of course, to train him for police work, they have to create the perfect criminal. So in the simulation, there is this character named Sid 6.7, played by Russell Crowe, who's this composite of all of history's most notorious like serial killers. And, and what ends up happening is for various reasons, mainly involving nanites, Sid 6.7 escapes the virtual world and becomes a real-life serial killer in the physical world. And because Denzel Washington is the only person who's ever been able to defeat Sid in the simulation, he is secretly released from jail to help lead up the search for Sid 6.7. And one of the cool things is that it, it becomes very personal because... You learn more about about Denzel Washington's tragic backstory, but the the most recent serial killer that makes up Sid 6.7 is a serial killer that Denzel Washington went after and that bared a personal grudge against him. So it's a very personal (laughs) conflict between both of them. And... Uh, Russell Crowe does an amazing campy performance. The, the, the rules they established for the nanotech, they pr- pretty much remain consistent throughout the film. Like they explain what their, 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 they explain what the sci-fi rules are and damned if they don't uh, stick to them. And what's also amazing is that, you know, because this was filmed right at the beginning of using lots of CGI and film, it's a very analog near future. Yes, I appreciate that about the movie. Yeah, and, and it also just has a delightful, especially when Sid is on screen, it has a delightful sense of humor because he's a real fun-loving killer and he's <laughs> always making quips while doing horrible things and he like is a big showman. There's a bit where he, he takes over a live TV broadcast by sneaking into the network disguised as a technician and he has this like, he's wearing this jumpsuit that has a patch, a name patch on it that says Jeff and right before he takes over the suit, he rips off the name patch that says Jeff and Velcro's on 
on a name patch that says Sid 6.7, which I like to imagine him going to the embroidery shop to get that embroidered name patch made. That's I can awful. imagine him going to the shop and them like messing up and like, oh, it says Sid, it says Sid 6.5. I said 6.7. And then he kills You have to redo it. We don't have yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. But I think it's fun. I think it's it's really worth your time. The only thing I can say against it is that very early on they establish like it very early on the premise makes you think the movie's going to switch back and forth between the real world and virtual reality because in the opening scene they tell you how you can tell you're in a simulation and it basically comes down to no simulation is flawless. There's always a glitch. You just have to know how to look for it. That never comes back. Right. Uh, so so a, as a result, you might be kind of confused when they do go back into a simulation. But uh, the, but the thing there's two there's two things that that really stand out. One, I look at this. There's a bit where at one point Sid six point seven has this flawlessly tailored purple suit, and it hit me. Young Russell Crowe should have played the Joker. Oh, he has the ooh. he has the same. This Sid Sid point seven has the same madcap energy and lust for life that Caesar Romero's Joker has, but he also kills people. And yeah. like this, he should have played the Joker. If he had played the Joker at this time in his career, we would never have stopped talking about it. And I do truly <laughs> believe any new Joker going forward would always be compared to his Joker and not Jack Nicholson's Joker. Yeah. The the other thing that jumps out, so there's a great band called the Lords of Acid. They do a lot of techno and club music. They were very important to me in my formative years. I think they've broken up and gotten back together and broken up several times. <laughs> but one of their songs from their album Voodoo U, great album. If you're going to start with Lords of Acid, you might as well start there. They use the hook from, from this one song um, multiple times. But here's the catch. They always they only loop the hook. They never play more of the song because if you knew what the song was, if you heard the lyrics and knew what the song was about, it would destroy the tension of every scene it's used in. But <laughs> because of where the lyrics, the distortion on the lyrics, there's this weird echo that you can't edit around. So whenever they use the hook from this song, like you always hear, and then it just like cuts. <laughs> and that's because the song is Young Boys, which is a song about a MILF who is trying to seduce all the 15-year-olds in her neighborhood. <laughs> and you don't want to hear Praga Khan going, Young Boys, when there's like a thrilling car chase. <laughs> yeah, Dirty it, Boys in, in the middle of this movie. It's, also, it's quite funny. Go Doesn't on. he regenerate by he has to eat broken glass to regenerate, right? Yeah, yeah. His nanites are made out of silicone, so they can assimilate anything made of silicon, and that's mainly glass. So yeah, like he'll like tentacles of nanites will come out of his hand and will kind of eat the glass in this neat effect. But there is a great scene where he is in a car and he's literally shuffling broken glass into his mouth to speed his regeneration. <laughs> um and and although I will, I will say when I, I saw this in the theater opening weekend with my friend Mark, because it was just our kind of movie, we had a great time. And one of the things we did afterwards is we worked out, okay, what glass did he assimilate that's actually silicon glass and what was, uh, an, what was an acrylic? <laughs> because, because at one point, like if you know how, if you know how metros are constructed, 
he consumes a metro, a metro window, emergency window that it would not be made out of glass. Yeah. It's a minor thing. It's like, it's a minor, like IMDb goof, but it is kind of fun to like work out, okay, what's actually glass and what is just a transparent plastic. Right. <laughs> You're talking about the music edit on that film. Um, I was rewatching Top Gun because I, I might see the new one in the theater. I keep on hearing uh, good things about it. And, um, so, so there's a track on, on the soundtrack of the first film called Mighty Wings by Cheap Trick. And yet in the film, the way it's used is they just loop instrumental parts of the song and don't have the vocals, which <laughs> if you haven't heard the song, you might not notice. But the, the vocals are like, take me on your mighty wings to fly again. Like it, <laughs> it's stuff that, um, you know, might seem a bit silly when, when they were putting the, the, the film together. But what what I thought is hysterical in the original Top Gun is uh, Danger Zone. They, they use a lot because uh, it's a great song um, done specifically for the movie. But at the beginning, they're like flying through the danger zone. And it's just planes taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier. Like nothing like it's a pretty routine <laughs> things like, yes, people unfortunately die from doing it from screwing up landings on aircraft carriers. Like it's not the as uh, as pilots will say, it's not the taking off, it's the landing. Yeah, it's That's one of those, like, hyped-up song movie moments that, like, when you actually see the, its original thing. It's, it's yes. like when you watch Shaft. It's like the use of Isaac Hayes' song is so fucking boring. You're like, really? <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, and, and you listen Shaft to the album, and, and the album version of the, the Shaft theme, not, not the radio cut, is, like, seven and a half minutes long. It has all this great noodly jazz stuff. But, like, it doesn't quite, like, oh, it, it's not all the... Uh, Who's the sex machine with all the chicks? Shaft, the knack and dick. You know, it, yeah, it's not. Um, even worse, the um, we really should do these the Shaft films on the show, but um, oh, yeah. we uh, uh, the, the, the the second film they couldn't afford to get Isaac Hayes because he'd gotten so popular from the first one, and it got an Oscar nomination. The the Shaft song. Um, so uh, the the director Gordon Parks, uh, himself a, a, an accomplished musician, does does a vocal Shaft theme. But the um, the melody is fine, but the lyrics like "shaft will turn your back into a bowl of jelly." Like it's <laughs> it's, it, it, it's um, you know, I feel like Isaac funny. Hayes deserves a biopic. He has had such an interesting career, and just like how defined a good chunk of that was with the Shaft theme to the point where he had a whole side job writing ref theme songs that were a reference to the Shaft theme. <laughs> yes, well, and then he, he he himself became an actor, and because uh, of that popularity of that, I believe, and starred oh, in things yeah. like Truck Turner, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Car Wash, the, um, the Oblivion films. Those... Oh, oh, yes, yeah. The um, what, the, what, what was it? Sleepaway Camp Three, where he plays a chef named Chef that wears the white hat and the red T-shirt, like the South Park uh, <laughs> character that kind of yeah. That's quite. Oh well. Shaft, 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 spam, 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 baked beans and shaft. No. Um. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, this has been, it's been too long since we've done one of these. Getting back into it. Um, so next week, we will talk about the second Quatermass film. It's just called Quatermass 2. Is that right? Yes. Um, uh, I think the U.S. title is Enemy from Space. Not the Quatermass double experiment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not another creeping fear. Right. Creeping unknown. Creeping unknown. Creeping fear is one of the um, decoy titles for uh, 
Star Wars Episode Three: The Revenge of the Sith. Really? Ah. I take that back. Phantom Menace might have been creepy. One of the prequels that was like the big internet rumor was uh, it's going to be called The Creeping Fear, man, which sounds like a Star Wars title, but yeah, it was not to be. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT or on uh, YouTube at... I just changed my YouTube channel, so I don't remember what it is. Um, yeah, just follow, follow me on uh, Twitter and... Uh, if you look on Amazon, we've got some links for some of my books in the show notes uh, of Thrasher. All right, you can follow me on uh, both Twitter and Instagram at, at WT2Art. Uh, also, I am hard at work uh, writing our, our LARPs for Gen Con. So if you are going to be at Gen Con and would like to meet one of the sequel casters in person and would like to play in a really cool live-action role-playing scenario, uh, just look for Kettle of Fish Productions. That's the banner I do all my LARPs under. Uh, we've got a lot of fun things, uh, fun things uh, coming up, including uh, Toontown Noir. If you like, uh, if you like, lots of different kinds of animation uh, coming together in a weird uh, murder plot, Toontown Noir is probably the LARP for you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Thrasher, you've been uh, done um, easily dozens of conventions over the years, oh, doing yeah. your LARPs for over twenty years now, probably right under the Kettle of Fish banner. Maybe not uh, quite twenty years, but y- it's getting. If you want to get technical, we are two years away from our twentieth uh, anniversary. As far as convention LARPs as an organization. That's outstanding. Have you ever had someone come up to you and said, oh, you're from SequelCast? No. <laughs> but, but I want that to happen. <laughs> sure, sure. So I, I hope it does do someday. That at Gen Con. Yeah, that, that would be... When that happens, just promise me you'll record that moment. Well, I, if I see it coming, <laughs> I, I will do my best to record it. Yeah, how would you see it coming? I, yeah, anyhow. Um, very good. Alex. Oh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914, and um, if you're feeling adventurous, uh, drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. Um, I've uploaded, uh, these were actually school projects, but of course I'm going to throw them on my YouTube channel. Um, I did a short documentary essay film on The the Shining, um, the novel and the movie. Um, also, I did uh, Searching for the Death of America, three films that killed the 60s. Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde, and Night of the Living Dead. Um, that's not the title, but that's the you know opening statement, we'll say. Um, so, yeah, check, check, check them out. Yes, very good. All right, so next time, Quatermass 2 uh, for sequel cast 2 and Friends. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Same. It's not a gin goblin. We didn't do the scene. God damn it. Let's do the I had scene. to get that in there. I just like that line. <laughs> yeah, so this is two characters. Am I reading this right? Uh, yeah, it's, all, it's only two, but I love the Fine. bit. So it's a police sergeant interviewing a woman, and that woman is Rosemary Rosie Elizabeth Rydell. Which one do you want, Alex? Oh, let's see. Um, I will be Rosemary. Okay. Um, do you mind if I play the police sergeant? No, not at all. And refresh my memory, is the police sergeant is British, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're they're all British. Yeah, they're all British, except for Quatermass. Okay, great. Um, let's And you'll read the, the parentheticals, Thrasher? Oh, certainly. Okay. Uh, Okay, action. 
think carefully, Rosie. Was it this something? Was it walking quickly or slowly? Walking? It was kind of crawling up on the wall. It wasn't like any of the things I've seen on Saturday nights. No, Rosie, I think this time you really saw it. On the phone. Get me the art. Well, cancel it. This is a priority. Really? You saw it? You mean that this time is not a hallucin? It's not a goblin? I really hope Joe Dante directs a film called Gin Goblin. It's a <laughs> stealth gremlin sequel. I know. It's like, is that her mispronouncing goblin or was a gin goblin like slang for alcoholic wino? Yeah, a gin goblin slang. is slang for a weird thing you see when you're really drunk. Oh, like the DC. Chiefly British. Ah, very British. You know, I mean, you, you haven't seen you haven't seen a gin goblin. You know, got the a few more points then. <laughs> <laughs> all right very good so next week we're taking off no yes we're doing we're doing next week but not the following week <laughs> yes okay quatermass did, 2 on the 12th did i upload that quatermass 1 and 2 we have the other ones okay. we don't Sweet. Um, i get on that so what it, it, it's it's just the four films right yeah, the Quatermass conclusion is a, bleh, I think it's a series edited into a film. <laughs>